Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Oshman family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Oshman family JCC is an incubator for new expressions of Jewish identity. It creates innovative Jewish learning, celebrations, and arts programs that inspire personal connections to people and ideas from across the Jewish world. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 89, Reform Judaism, Today and Tomorrow. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And we are continuing our exploration of Reform Judaism. We're looking at the Reform Movement, but not only the Reform Movement. We're looking at that bigger idea, the idea of reforming Judaism, the impulse to reform Judaism, which, at least in its modern manifestation, came about in Europe after the Enlightenment and has come over to America and has given rise to a number of progressive Jewish movements. But we're going to be exploring primarily the movement that's called the Reform Movement. And today we are joined by the president of the Union for Reform Judaism, the URJ, basically the leader of the movement, Rabbi Rick Jacobs. We're very excited and honored to have him on the show. Rabbi Jacobs, before becoming the president of the URJ, served for 20 years as the rabbi of Westchester Reform Temple in Scarsdale, New York, where he was known as one of the most forward-thinking and innovative congregational rabbis. Rick Jacobs is also a fellow podcaster. His podcast is called On the Other Hand and is his weekly reflection on the Torah portion that is traditionally read in the synagogues that week. So we're excited to have a fellow podcaster on the podcast with us. And we're really interested in talking to him about the present and future of Reform Judaism as a movement in America. So welcome, Rick Jacobs. Thank you so much for joining us on Judaism Unbound. Thank you. I'm delighted to be with you. Great. So, you know, we talked recently with uh, Rabbi Danny Friedlander, and um, he was describing to us these sort of three eras of Reform Judaism. The early days as kind of the moderate Reform period, the uh, middle days as the classical Reform period, and sort of the period after World War II as the new Reform. And I'm wondering, are we still in the new Reform period, or are we on the cusp of some really new reform period. And, and, and I guess more broadly, the question is, how do you see things changing or not changing from the way they were in the late 20th century? I think we're on the cusp of a kind of a new paradigm within the Jewish world and maybe broader than that. So I, I, again, I, I think it's easier to look back and say that was the moment that things shifted and changed. Um, but I think as we look at, um, you know, as, as spiritual religious life in uh, in sort of the 21st century, I think we're, we're at a moment we see within Christianity, we see, you know, shifts and changes in the broader religious landscape. So I'd like to think that uh, reform today also is uh, a broader category. We have so many people who have come to us from no background, no Jewish background, no religious background, perhaps, and many who've come to us from more traditional backgrounds. So I think, you know, when you look at the early stages of reform, you know, people were very ideologically uh, homogenous. You know, okay, we wanted to be in this particular part of the Jewish world. And uh, there was a sense of uniformity, I think, more throughout the movement in earlier periods. I think what's exciting is that people are coming to us from all the different places. You know, to come with no religious background means you come with, you know, maybe more openness. So I think the, um, the composition of our movement today is far more diverse than it's ever been. I think that's a, a, a huge uh, positive if we do our work well. That diversity means, first of all, you've got you know Jews of color, you've got interfaith families, you've got formerly traditional Jews who carry some of that love of tradition into Jewish life. And I think that mix right now is part of the, the ferment of trying to find what is going to be the idiom or the idioms of, of this iteration, as well as some of the, the structures. I mean, congregations are places where people gather together to, to learn, to pray, to care for one another, to do social justice. I think those are still core parts of what we do, 
but we're doing them differently. You know, religious learning does not look like Hebrew school from the 50s and 60s, thank goodness. And the way our sense of also inclusion, when Rabbi Schindler revolutionized Jewish life by saying, stop telling interfaith families to stay out. It's, re- it's, it's just a harmful and, and, and just ill-advised uh, strategy. Bring, bring interfaith families closer. Bring, frankly, all who are hungry closer. So these shifts and changes, uh, I think, are, are, are the beginnings of a different moment in the life of the reform movement. And now we're at a moment where people you know, are questioning, what are the connections? What are the ways in which I will define my connection? I actually think it's a positive that people are raising those questions. I'm not distressed by that. We want to be sharper and crisper with our answers, however. Um, I remember growing up even in the world where reform was largely a series of things that we don't do. How do, how do you know what reform is? Well, we don't wear kippot, we don't wear talitot, we don't keep kosher, we don't, we don't, we don't. And like by the time you're finished with the don'ts, people look at you and go, well, what do you do? I mean, what's, what's, the, what's the positive piece of it? And I think so much of reform, Judaism had to react and respond to traditional Jewish life. I think now, um, you know, that's not the project. The project is meaning. The project is is uh, getting the tent flaps open and broadening at the same time, deepening the experience once people are in. I think people are, are trying to sort through what are the big questions in their lives? Where do I find uh, support and strength and in, in even... Uh, you know, uh, agitation to move my thinking and my life to um, to a place where I, I feel like you know I both understand my place in this in this world and I have tools to make my life more meaningful and to you know be God's partner in shaping a more just and compassionate world around me. With Rabbi Freelander, we we heard about the heritage of the Union for Reform Judaism, which of course started as the Union of American Hebrew Congregations. So initially, there's a, there's a few things that were interesting about that. First, it was clearly meant for congregations. It was it was a, a it was a collective group for synagogues uh, or temples, as it probably would have been more accurately at that point, um, and. The other piece he mentioned, which I actually wasn't aware of, was that it was initially Hebrew congregations referred to all congregations. The idea was not at first that it would only be reform ones. So I'm intrigued by that shift to identifying as the Union for Reform Judaism because it, it seems to mark a recognition that, oh, this really isn't just about synagogues at this point, about temples at this point. And I'd just love to hear more from you because it seems like across the Jewish institutional world, a lot of people are aware that synagogue life, congregational life is in some places shifting and in some places, to be frank, dying. Um, and that's not a universal reality. There are many congregations that are thriving. But I guess I'd love to hear from you. What does it mean to envision a Jewish denomination or a Judaism that's not, we have synagogues and then also these other Jewish organizations that are floating around, but in fact, this incredible diverse set of institutions of which synagogue might be one category, but maybe not the foremost category in the future. So I think it's a really significant shift, and it's not just the name, you know, Union of American Hebrew Congregations becoming Union for Reform Judaism. I mean, one motivation for the shift in name was, first of all, Reform Judaism wasn't in the original name, and that was really reflective of Isaac Merowise's view that he wanted to found American Judaism writ large. He thought everybody could rally around and be part of that sense of we. Clearly, early on with the Hebrew Union College uh, first graduating class and the now infamous Trefa banquet, you know, the, the, the dinner celebrating the ordination of uh, our Reformed rabbis from HUC uh, way back in the day, uh, really kind of signaled that some of the changes were not just American versus European, uh, but ones that the traditional community did not feel comfortable with. But I think the, the shift in terms of the name congregation not being in Union for Reform Judaism is a recognition that, first of all, congregations are core to Jewish life for millennia. But they've been very differently both conceived of and practiced. Synagogues didn't look the way they do today, a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago, 
but some structures that bring us together to do our work in community. But to think about, you know, was that the only way uh, to imagine synagogues? We, we believe that synagogues are core to Jewish life, but they're not the only core in building more pathways in. I'll give you an example. In the early 50s, my predecessor, Rabbi Maurice Eisendrath, had the possibility of purchasing the first uh, UHC overnight camp in Oconomowoc, Wisconsin. And initially, you know, I went to the archives and, and kind of looked at the initial uh, conversations and correspondence. And at first, to be very frank, he couldn't figure out, like, why would why would the reform movement have summer camps? It was like, you know, we do congregations and, and that that is the center. And let somebody else do, do overnight camps. That doesn't have any connection. And of course, it was one of the most significant decisions he made to not just purchase that first camp, but we currently have 16 overnight camps. And in the summer of 2018, we'll have 18 because camp is a community where we learn, we pray, we care for one another, and we take stands for a more just world. And look at a college campus, uh, you know, Truth in Advertising, Lex, you and I had the privilege at Brown University to lead High Holy Days uh, a couple years back is, is a Hillel Foundation not a primary community with all those aspects? Yes, it is. Would you call it a congregation? Probably not. So I think we need a broader category, which I'll call community. Congregations are a really essential, and I think in many places still vibrant expression of Jewish community in all of its core purposes. But we're seeing in the wider Jewish ecosystem things growing that are very exciting. What I would say that's most important to, to see is that innovation is happening deeply within congregations, within synagogues, as well as beyond, beyond the walls of synagogues. I'm actually not so uh, focused on where I find it. And I think, let me just be frank, I think in the wider Jewish world, we assume that there can be no innovation within synagogues, that all the innovation, all the startups are all happening beyond the walls of synagogues. My experience is uh, that's not the case. And I think we should be disciplined about learning what's growing inside of congregations, what's growing outside. Let's let's see it as more of a whole as opposed to, you know, some competing Jewish um, institutions or some Jewish, uh, you know, worldviews. That doesn't feel like it's either productive or smart. I've been surmising for me, which is why I've been so excited about having this conversation with you, that... It, of all the the larger movements in the Jewish world today, you know, or the larger, let's say not movements, but like large institutional kind of uh, groups that actually have, uh, you know, a, a large number of affiliated organizations and resources or wh whatever, that at least among the religious movements, the reform movement is sort of best positioned to be an accelerator of innovation because... Just like you described the the what the movement is all about, right? The the sort of interest in in a big tent and in, in diversity. Uh, you know, there there it seems like with the conservative movement, certainly with the orthodox movement, there's there's a lot of rules and regulations that that often get in the way of the the full ability to say to some startup that's doing something you know very strange, you know, oh, that's that can be part of our movement, um, you know, because it might well violate a set of rules that they have. Whereas that wouldn't necessarily, it probably wouldn't be true of the reform movement from a sort of ideological standpoint. And then and so the question is, is it possible for the reform movement to do more than and simply cheer those things on from the sidelines? Is it possible to actually say somehow our movement or our whatever we want to call it is 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 big enough to encompass that and we can actually create space and, and actually very importantly uh, provide resources, whatever those resources might be, whether that's not only money, but it's also money, um, but also other kinds of resources such as really enthusiastic volunteers that that are active in the movement that might also help your startup, et cetera, and that, that somehow um, the reform movement really is in a position to uh, be a, a, a not only a cheerleader, but also a driver of that kind of innovation or a facilitator outside of synagogues. And then after that, I want to come into the question of inside of synagogues. Well, I think very much we don't want simply to be um, open to it alone. That's that's great. And watching and cheering, that's also good. I think we exactly want to be figuring out, you know, with many partners, 
um, in Jewish life to figure out where are those places where we, we, we both see and need innovation. Let me give you an example. Uh, the way we learn, the idea that, you know, we have to sit in a classroom and desks and uh, read tired books about Jewish life and be told things that, you know, don't really speak to this moment. I think we know that there's, you know, dynamism. I, I, I know for me, you know, I, I went on junior year abroad to a Hebrew University in Jerusalem and I walked into Rabbi David Hartman's uh, philosophy seminar on Jewish philosophy, on Maimonides, uh, Spinoza, and Halevi, and it was like someone turned the lights on, and I said, "Oh my! I mean, this is this is as deep as water can be." And all of a sudden, and he's an Orthodox, you know, thinker, an Orthodox Jew, ordained by Rabbi Soloveitchik, and and yet he turned the lights on in terms of really deep, serious uh, Jewish intellectual debate study, and I thought to myself. Why, why is it I'm a junior in college and now I am absolutely in this water that's been so, you know, um, you know, kind of kept from me? And how do we get our young people and families and anyone who's seeking to be able to touch the live embers of Jewish learning and not to be, you know, um, in a sense, in all of these different uh, settings where that's just not apparent? At all, and you know the ones that are succeeding. I mean, we have a congregation that said, you know, we're going to close our religious school. We think we're doing more harm than uh, than good, uh, but we're not going to stop doing Jewish education. We actually think that we'll take all of our families away on five retreats. You can't send your kid unless you come. We think taking a whole family away for five retreats will do more than all those, you know, Sunday mornings, Tuesday and Thursday afternoons in a classroom talking about this thing. Rather, get people in this thing called community, in this thing called Shabbat, in this thing called learning and doing. Um, so I think we have a real stake in the innovation that, again, isn't going to define everyone and everything in the same way. But we can't simply watch and say, I hope that some people come up with you know, new and better ways for us to, to learn or spiritual practice that, um, that, that is alive. And, and again, Friday night or Saturday morning services are, are critical and important, but not necessarily in the forms that you know, we've inherited. They've always been in process. I mean, the number of Jews that, that meditate, it's not a small number. I mean, people are hungry for different modes of spiritual practice. So I don't think we can sit on the sidelines and say, I hope that good things come uh, along. We also want to be discerning and to, uh, you know, to take smart, creative people, give them, as you say, Dan, uh, sometimes it's, it's, it's financially to invest. Sometimes it's to give them the wisdom of people who can take a, a good idea and to help make it, you know, more refined and to, and to then uh, try it out in different settings and maybe in some slightly different ways. But the spirit of innovation is just the spirit, I think, of Reform Judaism. Try things. If we have to, fail forward uh, when we can uh, be able to distill best principles, not best practice. People are always trying to find the new thing, the new shiny thing and saying, oh, well, if we did that, everything would fall into place. And I don't think there's one way for us to learn or one way for us to pray or social justice. I think right now we're redefining Judaism and there are a lot of people who want to redefine Judaism without social justice. I find it absolutely distressing. I can't imagine Judaism without social justice. We didn't make it up in the 19th century. We didn't make it up in the 20th or the 21st century. I don't believe any of the Hebrew prophets or even some of the, the Torah core narratives could imagine a Judaism that didn't say shaping the world according to justice, according to core Jewish teachings, isn't primary. But I think in Israel, we're having that debate. That's one of the many debates we're having in Israel, where a lot of the Orthodox establishment is saying, you know, it's about ritual observance. It's about all of the things that, you know, fit into that box. But we're going to separate Judaism from a public policy. We're going to set Judaism from ethics and public life, uh, issues of war and peace. And I think that's one of those core places. So for us, the synagogue as a place of, uh, of, of social activism. But if we don't have a Judaism that incorporates the, the fundamentals of spiritual practice 
integrated with social justice activism and deeply built upon learning and ongoing learning, and also that there's kindness in how we treat one another. It's not a Judaism that's going to you know, engage me, and I imagine it's not a Judaism that's going to engage either of you. But unless we're willing to try more things uh, and, and more broadly and more seriously, we're not going to continue to evolve the Jewish tradition as is needed. I want to look at the distinction between uh, sustaining and disruptive innovation. And by the way, I always think it's important to point out to our listeners who misunderstand, we actually strongly support both. We, uh, you know, we think that uh, sustaining innovation, uh, look, the, the first step is is to just be, you know, do innovation, period. That's a, that's a positive step. Um, however, many people understand that innovation is always important. And the natural thing to go to is sustaining innovation. What that means fundamentally is that you keep your current customers happy and you try to add some new customers. Disruptive innovation fundamentally is about going to a population of, quote, customers or, you know, potential participants that are not... Uh, similar necessarily to your current participants and saying, are we willing to do something sort of profoundly different that can engage them? And it would actually be something that's not of interest to our current participants. So let me give you an example, because I had an interesting conversation a few years ago with uh, a member of a congregation. Actually, I don't know if it was a conservative reform congregation, but it was in Washington, D.C. And they were very aggrieved that there was certain stuff going on in the synagogue that was aimed at creating Jewish life for these kind of um, young people in Washington, D.C. who work in congressional offices and whatever, and they're only there for a few years. And what they were grieved about was that they were being told by the leadership of the synagogue that this was going to help with membership. And they said, this isn't going to help with membership because these are transient people who are only in D.C. for a few years, and then they're going to go off to other cities. And so what the leadership is telling us is not true. And I said to them, you're right, it's not going to help with membership directly. And the leadership shouldn't be justifying it based on that justification. The leadership should be essentially saying, we happen to be in D.C., and therefore we have an obligation to the Jewish people and to the Jewish future to play the role that is needed for someone in D.C., which is to engage these folks in, in Judaism. So fundamentally, we're engaging in some form of philanthropy. But that's sort of at odds with the typical way that people think of, of a synagogue as a membership organization that serves its members. So in a sense, the question is, for, the, for synagogues, how to encourage them or help them to do the kind of innovation that may not serve their current members at all and may or may not ever bring those people that they do serve into membership as known today. Um, and the other question is like on the bigger picture of the, the Union for Reform Judaism as a whole or the reform movement as a whole is how can, how can it kind of um, support that kind of innovation that's really directed at the people who, um, you know, the issue isn't that they uh, are, are debating whether they should be Orthodox or Reform. The, you know, the issue is they're debating whether they should be Jewish or not, essentially. So I think this idea that, you know, we measure our impact only on those who immediately and directly become involved, that's not Jewish life and that's not being a responsible Jewish leader. We're, we're responsible for the wider claw, the wider you know, sense of Jewish peoplehood, and that we're part of this larger project uh, rather than just building and strengthening a local congregation. But I think if you're trying to build and strengthen a local congregation, this is still the right way to think and act. And I, you know, occasionally will walk into a congregation where I see them, you know, kind of walking around with, uh, you know, a membership form in their pocket looking for a new recruit that walks in. And all of a sudden you go, I don't know that person. And all of a sudden they dash over and say, hey, <laughs> you look new. You want to join? Here's a form. Fill it out. Could you write a check um, today? Or it could be tomorrow's fine, too. Like going, really? On what planet is that actually how this moment and Jewish life is going to move forward. First of all, you know, we don't work that way in our personal lives. We're not going to work that way in our communal lives. So I think we have to see a bigger picture. And when we do, we'll see a bigger opportunity. And we'll also employ some different strategies. And therefore, a congregation, say, in Boston, take Temple Israel in Boston that has something called the Riverway Project. Uh, they're investing, frankly, in the idea that they're going to bring a lot of young adults closer to Judaism some of whom may become involved at Temple Israel. Uh, many will be involved in other uh, parts of the Jewish world. 
but they see that as a primary part of their Jewish responsibility. It does feel like a bit of a disruptive thing. Are we going to serve people outside our walls? Are we going to uh, make less distinction between member and uh, and non-member? Is the is the membership model itself any longer relevant? Um, you know, to define you know who's in, who's out by who filled out a form or who writes a check and, you know, do I belong even before I join? Am I a part of this community? Uh, even if I'm brand new to the community and I haven't formalized that connection, these are the big questions being debated and frankly being worked through with different uh, models. One of the models that many of our congregations are exploring is new models of membership, new models of belonging, new models of financial sustainability and I think they are not just nice things to uh, to work on, uh, but the outcome of how we reconceptualize, you know, the notion of membership, the notion of belonging, may be one of the most key things for us to work out for strengthening the Jewish present and future. We we started out the episode, and you talked about how reform is. Um, by by virtually all the metrics, the most populated Jewish denomination in American Jewish life today. And what I'm curious about is what's interesting about many of these surveys and stuff asking that question, how do you affiliate, which is that there's also a category of not denominational or just Jewish or any of these kinds of questions. And I just, I want to hear... Um, is is the entire framework of a Jewish denomination, not just reform, but also conservative, otherwise shifting? Because just anecdotally, I, I, I had an I had a few experiences that caused me to think about this. I was living in Mississippi for a few years um, and visiting all sorts of different congregations. And when I would meet some people, often older people, that had moved in the past few years or whatever, they tended to move to a new place. And their instinct was, if I'm a Reformed Jew, I'm looking for the Reformed congregation in this town, and I'm going to probably join that. Um, these, these are of the group that are that are looking to join congregations. Similar for conservative, etc. But when I talk to a lot of people, increasingly, and especially younger people, um, if they're looking to join congregations, they often actually don't care at all what denomination it is. They're just looking to join a vibrant good Jewish community. And if it's reform in one place and then they move and they join renewal and then they join conservative somewhere else, like they don't really care. Um, and increasingly, even within congregations, for example, I lived in Jackson and there was only one congregation in town. It was affiliated with the reform movement, but the Saturday morning service skewed very conservative because it, there's only one congregation in town and you have to ultimately have a space for as many people as you can. I, I think it's always been sort of a blurry membrane between denominations, but it's becoming blurrier and blurrier. And I guess I'd love to hear from you as as a prominent leader of one denomination, sort of why is it still important that we do have these denominations? And also maybe pushing a little, like what are the ways that the denominational identities are going to have to change? I actually don't think we're a denomination. We're a movement. And when I say, for example, the civil rights movement that included a number of organizations that were really, really, you know, foremost in the civil rights movement. But it also included all kinds of people who identified with the struggle, identified with the core mandate of civil rights as, as basically one of the most important things they could spend their time working on, working towards. So the movement included organizations, but a much wider swath than just those who belong to the NAACP or to SNCC. So I think this idea that reform is a set of ideological uh, commitments that someone has to profess when they walk in the door or they formally join, I think we're right now in an evolving sense. And I think most people are multiples in terms of their Jewish identity, right? You know, I grew up in a conservative temple, but I fell in love with a wonderful uh, partner who came from an Episcopalian background. So we're looking for a place that's going to reflect our core commitments and values where we can live and love and learn and discover and act in ways that feel congruent to who we are. I think, you know, there, there are multiples in everyone's uh, lineage and background and, frankly, in their present identity. 
And I think the reform movement, uh, to the degree to which we are strong and growing and vibrant, I mean, first of all, it's a news story that we have 23 new congregations in the last couple of years. It's not, by the way, a news story that anybody wants to write about in the Jewish community. Goes, no, 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 that's not the narrative. No, no the narrative is synagogues are, you know, are, are all dying and uh, Jewish life is going to all look completely differently. You know, and if you have a counter narrative, people say, oh, we don't know what to do with that. So you know what? We're actually not going to write about that. Uh, I, I don't mean to suggest that synagogues, as they were in 1958, are exactly what people are hungry for today. But I do think that uh, people at different stages in their lives and different moments, you know, think and, uh, and, and yearn for something different. I mean, if you're 29 years old, you're starting a career, you're living in Phoenix, Arizona, but you grew up in, uh, you know, Minneapolis, you know, you're not necessarily at a place where you're going to first thing out of the airport is you're going to look for where's the synagogue I'm going to belong. I think, you know, we have to figure out what are those places where such individuals might, you know, find community or find uh, some things that that are, um, you know, there. They may they may say, I'm going to come to Shabbat dinners, you know, once a month that are, um, you know, really nourishing, not just, uh, you know, in terms of the food, but the community and the and the and the people who share some core values. So I, I think that, you know, we, we, we think sometimes in these denominational buckets and the just Jewish bucket, I think, is comprised of a lot of people with a lot of different notions. And, um, you know, I think that the reform movement's core commitments are lining up pretty well with what people are yearning for. And so I think we want to stay with our essence, not necessarily with our, our banners. Could you, uh, those 23 new synagogues, we would like to report this story. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about... Uh, what they are like? Are, are they uh, where? Where are they being started? What What's the driving force behind them? So, first of all, I think some of them are in um, places that you would identify as uh, kind of the the newer migrations. You know, the Southwest, but some of them are in the middle of uh, you know a vibrant Eastern cities. But they're a different type of congregation, offering a different type of community and learning and spiritual practice. Uh, we also see, you know, some of our um, some of our new congregations were formerly unaffiliated. They were just, you know, startups. They got going and they said, you know what? We want to be part of this uh, youth network and the camping network and the social justice network. We want to be part of something larger, uh, that there's strength that comes with that, as well as the innovation that we can be uh, experimenting with and being directly participant in. So they're not all brand new. They're simply new to the URJ, and some of them have more traditional, you know, kind of practice, and they basically probably felt for a while, we're not going to fit in with the reform movement. Maybe we'll fit in somewhere else. So I don't think there's one um, type. Of, let me just also say that we created an online um, platform called reformjudaism.org. Can I tell you that in the last couple of years, seven and a half million discrete users show up at reformjudaism.org to find out, you know, something about the week's Torah portion or before Pesach, you know, how could we make Seder vibrant? Uh, also, how do I make haroset, you know, the some of the ritual foods? Some of them are very specific things that they want, you know, help with. Or how do I think about Israel? Or is prayer uh, something that I feel comfortable with? And is there a Judaism that has a broader understanding of the Holy One? So I think we're trying to figure out Kind of where are some of these uh, virtual and some of these, uh, you know, actual doorways? And, um, you know, what is it that people are hungering for? And to what degree is that what we are about? And I think that there's been a, a synergy in, in those two uh, categories. And I think it's going to continue to evolve. And the goal isn't simply to be a large, vibrant denomination. The goal, I mean, the purpose of Jewish life is, is, is to be partners with God in, in, in reshaping and shaping the world as it ought to be, not as it is. So, you know, this idea that institutions are busy in preserving themselves is just foolish. Like, for what end? But you know probably better than we do 
that people do hang on to those uh, buildings and those institutions and, and, and find it really hard to, to make some of the moves of, of reinvestment of resources to, to accommodate that. And that's sort of that's the theory of disruptive innovation, right? That, you know, Christensen often talks about how it's not poorly managed companies that fail to, 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 to bring the disruptive innovation to market, but actually well-managed companies, because there's actually not a great move in the short term that allows you to sort of transfer those resources. And so, I mean, selling buildings is, is the easiest example of that, just right, because it's, um, it's, it's clear that on the one hand, that would, uh, free up a lot of resources. And on the other hand, we know that a lot of people are reluctant to do that. And so the question is, like, how how do you really help um, get past those sort of, um, you know, organizational inhibitors in order to be able to explore what you're talking about? But that means that you would, you know, essentially be transferring resources from this like known stable quantity, like a building, right, into experiments, many of which will fail, you know. And and I totally believe, and I think that you do, that that's sort of in many ways the right thing to do. And yet we also understand how that's so difficult for people and organizations. And so how do we, how do we, and how do you sort of, from your your position at the top, you know, how do we sort of like encourage that and 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 smooth that and and you know. Um, how do we, for example, maybe bring in some some new large scale donors that are able to help congregations that are willing to take some of those risks to make them a little less risky? Like, is that something that we could do, or or what are the other sort of moves that make some of that more practical? One of the things we've been working with actively with our congregational leaders is is just helping everyone to stay focused on what really matters and not just to be biting one's nails and saying, "Oh my gosh, seems like you know some of the the, the models of synagogue life are, are are being challenged. Uh, you know, saying, okay, what do we learn? What do we learn from that? Um, how do we adapt? Right? You know, Marty Linsky, um, who taught for many years at the Kennedy School, one of all of our teachers, you know, Marty reminds us that a lot of times we focus on the technical, you know, changes and not the adaptive changes, right? It's like the congregation that says, you know, we really like some help from the URJ. Can you help us with a, a new font for our newsletter? <laughs> they say, well, I'm glad you asked about that newsletter, but, you know, we're going to actually take four more steps back and say, you know, newsletter may not be the best way to be communicating with a community in the 21st century. So the bigger questions aren't always the presenting ones, uh, but can we help leaders to see and think, and by the way, and to learn from the most innovative and bold leaders from within and also beyond our, our congregations, I think that that brings us to something much more uh, fertile for us in Jewish life. And it's, instead of feeling rivalry, like, you know, why is that that new startup doing so well down the street? But, you know, actually, you know, inviting them to coffee and saying they're struggling with financial sustainability, too. It looks like an absolutely perfect model until you talk to the people leading it going, wow. We really would love to be in some kind of relationship or conversation with other institutions, and maybe we could be thinking more um, creatively about the, I would call it the connective tissue within this new Jewish ecosystem. That that feels like responsible Jewish leadership. And, and I would just say, and I can't say it enough, I think that congregations are core, especially the ones that are adapting to the new realities of where we are and not holding on for dear life. The, the, the synagogues of the last 2,000 years have not simply held on for dear life. They've been open to the cross currents of change. That's been a huge positive. And human beings are maybe inherently a little nervous about change. Maybe that's just part of the DNA of being people. Uh, so I think we try very much to normalize change as something that's healthy and good. Why do so many people come on the Yamim Noraim, the, the days of awe, the high holy days? I think because it's about, you know, about change and growth personally and communally. And I think we struggle with that. But it's the it's the absolute, uh, I think, core of a, of a spiritual religious life is how do I myself continue to grow, change, hopefully deepen my own understanding and the way in which I live my life? And how am I part of a community that's also doing that and helping me to do that? I think that's that's how to normalize change and not to be fearful of change. I wanted to hone in on a really 
key phrase that you've brought into the Reformed Jewish and broader Jewish vocabulary, which is audacious hospitality. Um, if I remember correctly, you used that framing in a speech you gave towards the beginning of your tenure as leader of the reform movement. And now there's an entire sort of wing of reform that focuses specifically on audacious hospitality. And I wanted to I wanted to go into it for a few reasons. We're going to we're going to be speaking with April Baskin, who is re- the point person, um, the leader of that wing uh, upcoming in an upcoming episode. But I wanted to hear from you, too, because thus far, I think we've done a great job. And this is what we mostly talk about on the show is the question of like, elements of Judaism or people that aren't so attracted to Judaism that we could make important shifts that they would then become more attracted to elements of Jewish life. That's really important and one of our founding sorts of questions. But the other question is, there are a large cohort of people that historically have been interested but have faced barriers. Um, and and moves like audacious hospitality are are ways to start to overcome some of those barriers. And once those barriers are lifted, some of those people will just sort of be interested right away. And I'd love to hear from you. Um, I mean, broadly defined, what do you mean when you talk about audacious hospitality? Um, what does it look like to to work proactively to diminish barriers to people that are uh, to women to queer folks to Jews of color to uh, to non-Jews involved with Jewish life all of those kinds of groups um and also pushing a little bit um on the frame too because I love audacious hospitality I love the audacious part audacity reminds me of chutzpah I think it's a very Jewish idea um but also the hospitality to me sort of implies that sort of we in the institutions are like the ones who own the house and we are like sort of welcoming others in, um, we are being hospitable to them. When I actually think it might be that, that we're all equally citizens of this Jewish enterprise and we're all sort of co-welcoming one another, being co-hospitable. Um, so just, I'd love to hear more about audacious hospitality and what you've been working on there. Thank you. I mean, the term audacious hospitality for some people, you know, it's kind of they, they got this smile comes on their faces going, hey, what's that? Come on. Um, <laughs> it was very deliberately chosen because I think hospitality uh, is a good thing. It's a holy thing. I mean, it's a longstanding part of our tradition. I mean, we all think of Abraham, you know, running out to meet the, the three desert wanderers. By the way, having no idea that they were potentially angels bringing something to him, he he thought it was he was bringing you know kind of warmth and welcome to their lives. Turns out they were changing his life. I think that's a huge piece of what audacious hospitality is. It's not simply being friendly, although I think Jewish life could stand a little a little bit more friendliness. It's not just standing at, at the proverbial door of Jewish life saying, "Oh, welcome. My name is Rick. Please." come in. I'd love us to do that, but that presumes that the people coming in are coming into our defined and structured Jewish religious community, and they're going to somehow become part of us. And I think that audacious hospitality as a practice, I think it's a spiritual discipline, which says that we need those who are heretofore probably on the fringes or on the periphery largely because of barriers, because of attitudes, because of presumptions, and that we actually can't be who we are if we, they don't bring their ideas, their agitation, their insights, their love to our world so that it, it no longer becomes that this is the center that they're being invited into, but it actually is that we are strengthened by those. There was a notion for, I mean, Rabbi Alexander Schindler, Blessed Memory, is still the one who really created interfaith outreach and uh, stopped traffic in Jewish life because people did not think of it as a great, exciting, positive revolution that he was starting. They, were, they thought he was basically escorting people and the Jewish community to our demise. Uh, but it turned out that what he said was, we, we will actually find strength those interfaith families will come into Jewish life. And the notion that many people have pervaded until really, I would say largely this year and last year, is the notion that, that we will dilute Judaism by being audaciously hospitable. The people who come in, eh, they're really not exactly like us, but boy, I think they could have more richness in their lives if they could be more like us. 
I think audacious hospitality says uh, this is a two-way uh, process. People bring in new thinking, new new ways of being for us, and that will be strengthened. I think the by the way the demographic research, Len Sachs in particular, and particularly thinking about the Boston, the greater Boston Jewish community, is to say that you know um, the interfaith outreach work has in many key ways strengthened Jewish life, but. It depends on how it's practiced. Audacious hospitality is larger than the interfaith piece alone. It's the LGBTQ. It's the Jews of color. It's the people who once were who no longer are. It's um, thinking about, you know, people who are, you know, kind of uh, just spiritually uh, on a long journey. And the idea that we need those people, not that we're going to be nice and let them in and take, you know, their their, uh, you know, their contribution, but we're actually going to look for them because we absolutely will not continue to become who we were meant to be unless they are part of us. When you, when you talk to April Baskin and you think about the experience of Jews of color, and I've yet to be in a Jewish community where I look around and I say, hmm, the number is, is largely concluded to be 10% of the Jewish community are Jews of color. I don't know if the two of you have ever been in a community where you looked around and you said, okay, we're right on target here. Uh, I see us way, way under that number. And I think that we as a Jewish community, um, we can't just put out signs saying warm and welcoming. If I had a, a shekel for every sign that I saw on you know, a website or on you know, a building, warm and welcoming. I said, let us, let, let, let us experience the warm and welcome. Don't, don't, don't signal it by a sign. You know, put it into the way in which we, um, we, we live Jewish life. But part of that means that we have to have more permeable um, entry points, but it also means that you know people are able to bring uh, with them some of the biggest questions and some of the things that they have both acquired and learned along the way. And the demographics say if we don't do this well and smartly, um, you know, you don't have to be a demographer to look at the Jewish future. But I'm not just thinking of it as you know more people. I think it's more richness, more diversity, more wisdom, more kindness, more uh, more social back, social justice backbone, and therein I think is the opportunity of uh, of audacious hospitality. To think that in our summer camps, that we have now not all, but most of our summer camps have transgender campers who aren't simply having a incredibly transformative experience being at camp, as those of us who've been at you know summer camp know it can be. But it's also helping to change the attitudes and mindset of an entire generation. You know, when we were at our Nifty convention a couple of months ago in Chicago, and they started, they asked the Nifty leaders, that's our reform uh, teen youth group. Uh, it's a North American movement. What do they want to spend their time mostly doing? It's not just entertaining themselves or having fun. They wanted to actually begin a, a racial justice campaign. So they already, partly by they looking around the, the room and seeing a couple of thousand teen leaders and saying, we more accurately reflect the diversity of Jewish life. And the president of NIFTI uh, earlier this uh, this year, Catherine Fleischer, reflected uh, in her Devar Torah on Shabbos morning about what it was like to grow up in an interfaith family and to feel like even you know decades after Rabbi Schindler's revolution, that there's still hearts and doors closed. Mm. I, I so we're we've covered a lot of wonderful ground and we're arcing towards the end. But um, I wanted to revisit something you briefly mentioned in terms of you know you mentioned reformjudaism.org, but this digital society wide forget just Jewish uh, revolution that the digital world brings and. Um, I know that so you you are a partner with us in the Jewish podcast world that you have one of your own that you release um, and you also have this thriving reformjudaism.org website and there's other various experiments going on. I'd love to hear from you um, just the potential you see in various digital modalities for shifting um, in positive ways our our Jewish future and just what what are what are some of the ideas that that reformed Jews and reformed Jewish institutions have been playing around with. And uh, yeah, what, what's like, do you, do you see this as a, a really profound shift um, or, or sort of a, a more minor one? No, I think this is a, 
a really dramatic um, shift if, if we're open to the power of it. Uh, I think that, you know, having congregations that don't have websites are probably hard to find. And for me, entering into doing a weekly podcast was really a chance to try to have conversations with people beyond the people that I would on a face-to-face, you know, day-to-day level meet. Um, I think of a podcast that I did uh, in the spring of, uh, of 2017 where um, particularly talked about um, the Torah portion uh, in Numbers that describes Miriam and uh, Aaron speaking against Moses because of the Cushite woman that he married. Now, of course, Cush is uh, in Hebrew, one of the names for Ethiopia. And one of the very obvious interpretations is that he married an Ethiopian woman. He married a, a an African, a black woman. And, you know, what did that signal? Was, was the comment from Miriam and Aaron about uh, his partner? Uh, was it a was it a racially charged uh, you know comment? And uh, so so I, we do this podcast and a uh, an individual tweets at me from Anchorage, Alaska, saying, <laughs> I am a Jew, I'm hoping to be a Jew of color, but I'm in the process of converting. And I just listened to this podcast about is the Torah colorblind? And is the Jewish community colorblind? And then in this very simple sentence says, will I ever feel at home within the Jewish community? I, I, I got to tell you, I, I was sitting somewhere on my phone and, you know, I'm, I'm, my tears are welling. I'm thinking, I had no idea I was talking to this individual. But boy, am I glad that we were in this conversation that we get to follow up. I think we have to be thinking about Again, I love the different modalities that also have the two-way possibility, right? That you tweet out something and, so, and you know, all of a sudden, boy, there's some lovers who tweet back and there's some people going, oh, man, you are so wrong about everything you just said. So how, how do we have the kinds of uh, conversations, debates, discussions that are serious, deep, or, you know, respectful? Uh, and I think the technology is, is changing us. So we had our a board meeting in June of 2018, our North American board. And we actually had a, a tefillah with, you know, the 200 plus members of the board all through live stream. And at first they're going, really? We're here in real time. We're, we're, we, we could actually just pray in the kind of conventional way. I said, you know what? We had better understand the, I believe, hundreds of thousands of seekers who are finding their way into Jewish life through prayer that is live streamed. And, the you know, the living room of their home becomes, in a sense, a part, the extended part of a sanctuary. We better understand that and be part of it and be in a conversation. I, I remember, Lex, on one of the previous podcasts, you had this very agitational and thoughtful critique of people who said, turn your phones off for Shabbat. Turn your phones off because we've got to detox from our addiction to our technology, which, by the way, for me is still compelling because I find myself you know, with my technology sometimes, um, you know, kind of almost, uh, you know, dictating how I I live. But I was really uh, very, very intrigued by your agitation, which is to say, I could actually have this be the, my portal. This, this could be, I could hear four incredible Jewish lectures, or I could be part of four spiritual communities this Shabbat because of this phone and the access that it has. So I think we cannot be slavish to think that the technology is simply to amplify what is. I think it changes what is. It makes possible, uh, you know, the, 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 the community that's sitting in Prague and praying with a community in Cholon, Israel, that, uh, you know, was really intrigued by a Devar Torah given in um, Tucson, Arizona. I don't know where I was in a car somewhere, Lex. I kind of was like, I to stop the car. I want to write that note down. But I think that's a kind of machlok at the Shem Shemayim, an argument for the sake of heaven, that that I think my, my great-grandparents, they would just be rolling over in their graves going, I can't believe that's what we're arguing about. But when we see people who uh, say, I am active in Jewish life, but I actually live in a community where there are no other Jewish people. B- 
because I find my network through um, you know online platforms that that's that's an opportunity we better not be uh you know small minded about pigeonholing those technologies to only do certain things they could bust open lots of ways in which we think and act as jews one of the reasons why we release our podcast on Fridays is is specifically so that people that are interested in having an alternative way to experience Shabbat could do it, not only with our podcast, but also with other stuff. We're actually, you know, we're, we're very consciously trying to uh, put out there um, sort of a different way to experience Shabbat. You know, it's not it's not an accident that we're releasing on Fridays. Um, I was thinking about ReformJudaism.org in another way, too, which is that um you said there was something like 7 million, 7.5 million unique visitors, and that's greater than the number of Jews, greater than the number of Jewish adults by far in America. And um, so it could be that there are Jews in other countries that are that are coming on. Um, but also, and I'm sure this is the case, there are millions of non-Jews that are coming on from around the world. And um, we had one Mahia, Rabbi Juan Mahia, on a few months ago, and he uh was originally putting stuff out on the internet that was aimed at people in uh, Latin America who had sort of Jewish backgrounds, right, that were sort of lost in the Spanish Inquisition, but but and, and that might want to come back to, to Judaism. But then what he discovered was that all sorts of people who speak Spanish that had no Jewish background were listening and, and watching and were intrigued and wanted to become Jewish. And at a certain point, he said, well, why should it matter whether you had Jewish background 500 years ago or not? And so... The real sort of disruption that I think potentially is out there with uh, Judaism online that we haven't fully contended with is sort of what happens if and when uh, millions and millions of non-Jews around the world become intrigued with this and um, and and sort of want to become Jews. And not only how do we sort of audaciously be hospitable, but also like how do we be more affirmatively helpful in that? And I know that at least for us, sometimes, you know, people send us a message on Facebook or something that says, you know, tell me more about Judaism. And like, we're not really set up to do that. You know, all I can really say is listen to our podcast. I mean, that's what we, but the question is what, what, um, what's possible sort of, where does this go as a, as a next step potentially? And, um, and how do we even start to think about so first, that? First of all, I love the idea that we are at a moment where, People of no Jewish background and not in a relationship with any any individual or any you know groups of individual could be completely um, taken by the the you know the core of what Jewish you know Jewish tradition is all about. And I think there was a time when people were surprised by that interest. You know, like why 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 would you be so interested? Because plenty of Jews weren't sure about what was valuable in Jewish life themselves. And I think we're not surprised at all. And I think that the interest and the hunger that many people have, the spiritual hunger, uh, the hunger for more meaning uh, and for more ways to to make my life day to day more full of the things that matter most, uh, why would we be surprised that people would, would come to, to Jewish life and to, and to want to enter in? And I think we should not only not be surprised, but we should be, you know, kind of offering and opening the tradition. Be respectful for people who have a faith tradition. I got a nice person who always knocks on my door on Shabbos morning, selling me another religious faith. You know, and I keep pointing out the mezuzah, saying, you know, you keep coming back here. I'm pretty ensconced. I love my spiritual path, and I love that you love yours. Can we just agree that, you know, go on and find other houses that um, that someone actually does not have? A, uh, a spiritual home. So I, I don't want to take people from wherever they are spiritually grounded and uh, meaningfully engaged and say, no, 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 that's not that's not enough. You got to come over here. But I think the greater category is people who actually have not found any uh, grounding, no, no faith tradition, no spiritual community that really speaks to them. And I think that, you know, could we imagine in 50 years what our Jewish community might look like? Uh, the languages, the the different uh, backgrounds that would come in. Uh, I mean, think of Jewish history. There have been moments when we have had incredibly exciting interaction with other cultures and with uh, people who've not only come in but brought with them uh, much depth. Uh, I mean, I, I keep thinking also about all my friends who still you know, live in their spiritual lives in, in the Far East, right? They love Eastern spirituality. 
Well, I, I was a 16-year-old, and I, I wanted to meditate. I grew up in Southern California, and I asked, you know, around my Jewish community, who's got, you know, some Jewish meditation? I got laughed at. People were like, well, are you crazy? There's no Jewish meditation. So, you know, the, you know, the Beatles could find their Nehru jackets and transcendental meditation. I did too. But, boy, when I work with young people and teens, I want to make sure they know there's a rich, contemplative Jewish tradition to unpack and to experience and to put into their lives, if that's where they are. I think we have all these riches, and I think that we sometimes have this attitude that you know, what makes somebody worthy to come into Jewish life? You know, you know, I just think of the three times traditionally someone is uh, to be turned away. You know, I, I, all the years that I practice in congregational life, I got one call. I would dive at the phone to call that individual back. Somebody stopped me, you know, at a Oneg Shabbat and said, you know, I'm not Jewish, but I'm curious. It wasn't like, oh, yeah, well, come back when you're really serious. I mean, I think we're at a moment where people express a yearning let's let's actually take their hand walk them in again not try to sell them something but open the the richness the beauty the depth of what we're about so we're nearing our conclusion now but i had one last question i wanted to ask that we haven't fully fleshed out yet which is basically the issue of politics in judaism there's been a lot of articles lately from different angles talking about, you know, politics on the bima and the extent to which we should or should not bring up elected officials or de divisive, quote unquote, political issues. Um, what do you think about that? I know, I know that social justice has long been an important component of Reform Judaism and is very much a part of what many local congregations are doing and what on a national, international level, I know that the URJ is working on. But what does that look like? And uh, what's your take on the ways in which politics and Judaism should or should not be blended with one another? I think the congregations that are really thriving have found ways to speak from the, the core of the Jewish tradition, from the moral, ethical grounding, which is the religious, spiritual grounding of our tradition. But uh, what happens to the poor, what happens around health care, how do we treat uh, the elderly, how do we treat the stranger? These are not political questions. I refuse to allow them to become only the subject of political discourse. These are core Jewish categories that we ought to bring an authentic Jewish voice. And yes, you know, a little humility that, that my view on that may not line up with not only other peoples, but other very legitimate and, uh, frankly, honored voices. But if we can't figure out how to do that Jewish work in that kind of political, spiritual, and Zionist diversity, uh, I, I think we're, we're really, uh, I think, showing our weakness as a Jewish community. And I think uh, we're helping congregations reach for that. Uh, as opposed to saying, you know, let's make this a uh, an issue-free zone. Let's just make this where we don't talk about those really hard things. And we can all just get along. You know, honestly, it's not enough to just get along. We have to actually stand for something. And when we don't have a voice out there in the Jewish, wider Jewish community, I can particularly think of young adults who say, what kind of Jewish community is this? There's no, there's no view about... Um, you know, what happens to uh, all the, you know, 60 plus million uh, immigrants and migrants uh, looking for safe harbors in the world? If, if my Jewish community doesn't have a voice and, uh, you know, a, a set of commitments there, I, I don't know why I would enter in. So I think there's a lot riding on how we, again, and I don't think it's a new innovation to bring social justice into Jewish life, but to make sure that it's an integrated one. You know, when I put on my talus, which is a piece of cloth that I got in a refugee camp in the middle of Chad uh, as I was witnessing the Darfur genocide. So for me, ritual is not opposed to, uh, to uh, social justice. Um, the Seder is one of those moments where it so beautifully uh, connects and, and mutually strengthens, but also Shabbat. I don't just take a break for 25 hours. I want to get grounded. I want to get reminded about the core things that I need to do when I, you know, step step out into the world after Havdalah on, on, on Saturday night. So I just think there's a lot that we're debating right now that's going to shape the Judaism of today and tomorrow. And uh, I know that the reform movement has a, a lot in that debate. We feel very, very passionately and deeply about, you know, the kind of Judaism that 
that first of all is authentic to our tradition and is absolutely required for this moment. Thank you so much, Rick Jacobs, for joining us for this conversation. It's been such a rich one, and we're excited to keep thinking about so many of the issues that came up today. Thank you, Dan and Lex. I love this podcast, and I think it itself has teed up so many of the most critical issues for us to be debating. So thank you for each week putting before the Jewish community some really important, sometimes hard issues to think about. Kola uh, Kavod, more power to the two of you. Keep going. Wow. Thank you. That's incredibly kind of you to say and gratifying to hear. Um, Thanks again to Rick Jacobs for joining us for a fantastic episode of Judaism Unbound. We want to close this out in the same way we always do, by encouraging all of you out there, our listeners, to be in touch with us. And there's a few ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. Second, you can try our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And last but not least, you can hit us up via email at dan at nextjewishfuture.org or lex at nextjewishfuture.org. The last plug we like to make is that you can always support us with a monetary donation, either on a once a month basis, repeating, or a one-time gift. And you can do either of those at judaismunbound.com donate. So thanks so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound. <laughs>